is our children learning? You didn't build that. Because you'd be in jail. All men and women created by the goal, you know the, you know the thing. Those are the leaders of the past, but here at Gen Z GOP, we are looking to the future. Join us as we discuss how we can create a party that is worthy of our generation. Please clap. Welcome back, everybody, to Season 2, Episode 5 of the Gen Z GOP Podcast. I'm John Olds, your host, and I'm joined by my now two co-hosts, L. Kalish is back with us, but also we have a new addition to our podcast team, and that is Kada Carter Morgan, uh, or as in Boston, we would say Kada. But anyway, Carter is going to be uh, uh, our third co-host of the podcast. We're really, really excited to have him and his insights uh, on our team. And yeah, Carter, how do you feel about being a permanent installation here? Hold on, before Carter talks about his feelings being on the podcast, I just want to give just an overall like big congratulations to Carter because him and he and his wife just found out that they're going to be having a third baby, which is super exciting. Thank you so much, Elle. Yeah, we're super pumped. My wife and I, we've been married for almost five years now, um, and we have two wonderful uh, little boys right now, and so we're excited for the third baby. Don't quite know what the uh, gender of it is yet. Um, but we're super pumped. And uh, I'm all, I would say I am equally, if not more pumped to be the co-host of this podcast. Um, it's uh, I, I really am thrilled to be here. Um, John and Elle are just uh, some of the greatest, uh, you know, minds in sort of the younger conservative movement and to be uh, co-hosting this podcast with them, really quite an honor. Well, Carter, we're, we're happy that you're prioritizing this podcast uh, over your family and that your flattery yeah, I was is- say balanced if this podcast records when the baby is born i will attend the podcast instead of uh, <laughs> from the delivery like, and i want all Gen Z gop listeners out there this is my solemn i am swearing to you right now i will die for this podcast um well, and i want you to hold me to that i'm more excited about like the future child listening to the podcast and being like cool dad said that he was more excited about the podcast than he was about my birth <laughs> I, I am famously squeamish, and I will do anything to get out of witnessing the birth itself. So this is this is really just this whole thing is just a front to avoid witnessing uh, a third childbirth. Well, let's hope that delivery is as uh, seamless as your delivery here on the podcast. Um, the The next uh, thing I want to talk about really quickly it is Infrastructure Week for real this time, and it's Gen Z GOP Infrastructure Week. And to discuss all things infrastructure, we are joined by Ian Lineberry, uh, a, a policy blog contributor at Gen Z GOP. He's currently working on a piece on the infrastructure bill, the American Jobs Plan proposed by the Biden administration, and we will be talking about that today. So Ian, welcome aboard. Yeah, thank you for having me, John. Um, it's great to be on the podcast. I'm an avid listener of the podcast and really, really excited to be on here. Well, Ian, I'm excited to have you on here because typically I'm the resident Midwestern person that's always like, ah, out in Farmville. But now I'm excited because you're on the podcast and Ian doesn't live too far away from me, probably honestly just like two hours to the West. Um, so it's super excited to have another fellow Illinoisan on the podcast, um, especially because we're talking about infrastructure, which Ian, I feel like you and I have a very different take on infrastructure and like what is important and like what's wrong with it than the rest of the country, um, just kind of like where we are geographically. So I'm super excited to have you on for this app. Oh yeah, well, me and if anyone isn't familiar, Illinois is the land of bad infrastructure and potholes. So me and Elle are very familiar with poor infrastructure. It's correct. It's true. Could so Ian, could you just start us off by talking about what's actually in the infrastructure proposal that? that the White House has has put out there? Yeah, definitely. So in total, this plan is going to cost the American taxpayers about $2 trillion. But And obviously, this is a $2 trillion spending package. So obviously, I can't go over every single item that will be in this. But there are two main sections I kind of want to draw our attention to and kind of center the conversation around. And the first section is the transportation infrastructure section, as the White House calls it. This section comprises about $621 billion of the total spending. And 
while you might think this section exclusively deals with roads, bridges, and highways, things that we consider traditional transportation infrastructure, it goes way beyond that, but I'll get into that in a second. But actually, only about $115 billion of this $621 billion transportation infrastructure section actually deals with traditional transportation infrastructure like roads, bridges, and highways. Um, The rest of this $621 billion transportation infrastructure section goes towards things such as $85 billion for public transportation, $80 billion for Amtrak, and $174 billion for electronic vehicles. And another noteworthy part of this plan is a $20 billion um, sum that would address historical inequities in transportation. Ian, correct me if I'm wrong, um, but the infrastructure bill also includes several other bills that have been like floating around in Congress lately. Um, just one to flag that I feel like we should have our eyes on and everyone should be aware about is that the PRO Act is actually going to be included in this infrastructure bill that they're going to be trying to pass via reconciliation. Um, so I think that's like another big thing to add to all of this. Not only is it a $2 trillion spending bill, um, but it also has other bills just kind of like lined up in it and a matter of offsets and all of that stuff. Um, but it's also gearing up to be entirely passed via reconciliation, um, which I think is really, really interesting. Um, Also in this transportation infrastructure section is a clean water fund, including this included in this plan is money that would invest in changing water systems and pipes. But what's concerning about this is that it's typically um, done by private investments. This is a whole new federal inclusion on something that is traditionally handled by the private sector, which is going to be a common theme throughout this bill as I keep reading it. But any thoughts on that? Yeah, and I, I guess I would ask you, and maybe you can explain to our listeners out there. Um, I think anyone who's been following this sort of saga on Twitter, um, there's been a a an effort by our, our Democratic colleagues to expand anything to infrastructure, childcare's infrastructure, healthcare's infrastructure. At this point, it'd be easier to to explain what isn't infrastructure. But Ian, um, why? I mean. If people support these policies, right? Let's say you're someone who do, does support, say, raising the a or raising pay for um, senior workers. Why does it matter? Why why does it matter if we include an infrastructure bill or a separate bill? Well, because inherently it's dishonest. I mean, when we label something infrastructure, there's an understanding that there is potential for bipartisanship be- for behind it. Because typically, when we look at infrastructure, it's historically something that both parties can really get behind because no one wants to be on the other side of fixing roads and bridges. That's something constituents really like. And so masking policies that are inherently partisan and not something that both parties agree on in a cloak of infrastructure is inherently dishonest, for one. And two, it's just harmful because at the same time, you know, a lot of the policies that are also included in this bill that obviously aren't infrastructure, I'm going to get into those in a minute, you know, they just don't belong in an infrastructure bill, to be very frank about it. So Ian, could you just go over really quickly, I know you talked about the the transportation infrastructure part of the bill, but I think that there's another part of the White House readout called care infrastructure is what they're calling it. Could you just run through what what those proposals are? Yeah. So another noteworthy section in this bill is called the care infrastructure section. This section includes funds that go towards things such as care facilities and at-home healthcare workers, which for one, obviously aren't infrastructure. In total, around this section costs around $400 billion dollars And the express purpose of this section is for expanding access to quality and affordable home and community-based care for aging relatives and people with disabilities. There are also funds in this section that that go towards things such as the National Science Foundation, domestic manufacturing programs, and a dislocated workers program. And obviously, none of that is infrastructure, plain and simple. You know, if you have a very elastic definition of infrastructure, a lot of the stuff I mentioned in the transportation infrastructure section, such as electric vehicles, you know, you could maybe fit that in under a very, very elastic definition. But obviously, you know, subsidies for at-home care workers, that's not infrastructure. 
it's definitely not infrastructure. It's not in like my definition of infrastructure. But as the resident healthcare nerd here, I do have to say that this is the only section of the bill that I kind of vehemently agree with. Um, and I think that that can be, you know, scary in the sense of you just said it's like $450 billion. Um, but when you think about how our current system works, um, and kind of how much money we're spending, I think at home and community based care is is really, um, I think something that confuses people. Um, and so I'm going to break that down for you and kind of what that means. So what that means is instead of having to send your parents or grandparents when they get sick to an assisted living facility because you have to work and you have a living to make, that means that then you are able to have a at-home nurse come into the house and making sure that that's kind of covered in your health insurance, um, making sure that you don't have to drive all that far away to get your care. Um, all of these things are really, really important because at the end of the day, they're going to reduce the amount of healthcare spending that we're going to have. Um, and so granted, I haven't looked into the nitty gritty details of it, but I do know that this section of the bill is actually pretty bipartisan. Um, and this whole need for home-based and community care, especially for our seniors, is very, very important. We are seeing that the Medicare uh, trust funds are becoming depleted. We are struggling to finance Medicare overall. We spend so much of our GDP on healthcare. Um, and by being able to localize it a little bit more and kind of take that out of nursing facilities, which tend to be incredibly expensive. There's a lack of oversight. We don't really know where that money is going. We're paying for more sick patients, which is then incentivizing, you know, nursing facilities to not make the patients get better. There's a whole different thing. At the end of the day, it is cheaper, better, more comfortable, and better for everyone else if you are receiving care within your home. Um, and so although I agree it's not infrastructure, I personally think that it is very important um, and giving more money to our national academies and all these different things, I think is something that we do need to do. Um, I mean, we have just seen in the pandemic that we were able to get a vaccine in less than a year. Um, and that's huge. But we didn't do that. With, we could not have done that without the fundamental basic research that was happening at NIH on mRNA vaccines. Um, and so, like I said, I agree. It's not infrastructure. It's not roads. I think it's fundamental. Um, so in some ways, I can see when people are like, ah, it's infrastructure as it being like like a fundamental building block into kind of how our society operates, but more importantly, where we're spending money. Um, and so at the end of the day, I do think that this investment is going to bring long-term care savings, um, healthcare savings, but also overall just better health outcomes. Um, and that's something we desperately need to do in the States. Yeah, I definitely won't argue with you there. As our Medicare fund become depleted, there's obviously going to be a need for an alternative. And yeah, this is definitely a good alternative, except I beg the question, does it really belong in an infrastructure bill? And I think that's what's really holding me up about this section is that it just seems as if this has no place in a bill that we are calling an infrastructure bill. You know, obviously, we need to look for solutions. But at the same time, does this really belong here? So it sounds like we have some good things that aren't infrastructure. We might have some bad things that are infrastructure, and it's all kind of piled up into this big bill with a big price tag. And Ian, you actually alluded to this earlier about how anything that's deemed to be quote unquote infrastructure, historically, it's been pretty bipartisan. You mentioned that with constituent services, people use the roads, the bridges, the highways, the trains, the planes, they use those every day. And there's a pretty high salience for voters uh, when they use infrastructure. And you never want to be on the anti-infrastructure side of things. And I think one of the things that we want to talk about here tonight is sort of the GOP response to this bill. It's been pretty pretty negative uh, by all accounts. A lot of P GOP members of Congress have called out the bill for being uh, – as you said, having an elastic definition of infrastructure. But what do you think the GOP should do to sort of better engage on the issue as to not be painted as the, the anti-roads and bridges party? So I think the big solution here, and this isn't just a solution around infrastructure, I'm just talking a lot of priorities that are espoused by the other side, is we as conservatives need to present conservative solutions to the issues that are being talked about by the Democrats that 
constituents inherently care about. I mean, when we look at Congress, we see Democrats bringing in legislation that addresses things that people care about, like climate change and infrastructure. And we don't really see the GOP embracing any of their legislators or legislation that really addresses those issues. For example, uh, John Curtis, congressman from Utah, just introduced the Train Act, which is an infrastructure bill that deals with trains. And I have only, I've, actually, I should, be, I should correct myself here. I've only seen one news application cover that legislation. And that's really disturbing because that is a conservative alternative to this legislation, a bill that deals with infrastructure, specifically trains. So when we look at this and just look at the Biden administration in general, the Republican Party needs to be ready to come with alternatives to a lot of the priorities that they're going to be dealing with because we need to be a party of solutions. We can't be a party of no. We have to be a party of yes, we have solutions that are better than the ones that there are coming from the White House. I, I just want to chime in here and say uh, thank you, Ian, for highlighting the good work of John Curtis. He is he was my representative while I was in college. I actually worked on his campaign. He uh, represents the Provo, Utah area. Wonderful man. And uh, it's exciting to see um, some of the legislation he's introducing. And I completely agree, Ian. It's a shame that these good conservative alternatives are not being covered more. And that's one of the things we here at Gen Z GOP are hoping to uh, to make a difference in. Now, just coming from a, a political perspective as well, I think about one of the other major infrastructure packages that, uh, in the last century, that being the interstate highway system that was introduced under a Republican presidential administration, the Eisenhower administration. And by and large, whenever you think of who created the highways, you think of somebody like Ike Eisenhower. And he got a lot of credit for that. And that lives on to this day. And one of the things I'm worried about, obviously, I don't want to pass a bad bill. I don't want to pass a bill that doesn't have a high return on investment. It, it, I don't want to pass a bill that sort of in, invests in technologies and different parts of infrastructure that either aren't sustainable or just aren't good for American workers or American industry. But at the same time, I really, really, really don't want to cede this ground to the left, and I, I'm just really, really worried about the, the political implications of just opposing any sort of thing. But it, it is good to highlight and play up things like Congressman Curtis's bill. And I think Peter Meyer also proposed a number of different uh, infrastructure sort of tweaks and reforms as well. And I think we really, as conservatives, need to play those up. John, I think you hit the nail on the head here. Um, and I think that the problem that you're kind of speaking about, and I think this this is my biggest disappointment. Um, I think we can all agree. And as Ian and I said, uh, we are from the land of like terrible infrastructure. Um, there's highways that you can't even fully transport cattle on. And we're literally in the agricultural areas. So it, that's a whole thing. But I think the true problem here and what has just been so disappointing um, in the fact that we're doing infrastructure right now is that you know, the president came into office saying this is going to be unity. We're going to have bipartisanship, going to meet with people. Um, and so it's sure maybe like once a month, he has a few GOP senators over to the White House and they talk. And then obviously, you know, they squabble like all of that stuff. And oh, unity. Cool. Um, but you take something like infrastructure, which we talked about a few minutes ago, is historically very bipartisan because at what point in time if you are a member of congress can you say that infrastructure isn't important in your district um because it's either the infrastructure is important in your district to connect you to everything else or the infrastructure is incredibly important in your district because you have a ton of it um and so it's one of those things that it affects every single constituency except maybe the frontier um in congress and so it is historically bipartisan, um, yet we are seeing this infrastructure bill um, get presented to us like a budget resolution because they're going to try and pass it through reconciliation, uh, which means that they don't need to get 60 votes, um, which means that they don't need the Republican support. And so, John, I think that like we are kind of stuck in a rock and a hard place here because one, I almost want to just entirely oppose this simply because it's going through reconciliation. The second reconciliation, they're not even going to do it for fiscal year 20, 2022. They're going to still do it for this current 
budget reconciliation. So they're doing it twice. Because you guys just know we just passed the American Rescue Plan. That was also the reconciliation. And that's how they're doing this. Um, and so I almost entirely just want to impose it because it's going through reconciliation. It's just so stupid because infrastructure really is bipartisan. Um, and historically, infrastructure is one of those areas that we are able to kind of squabble between the parties and actually get to a better solution. Um, so you have that aspect of it where I almost want to say, let's not do anything because it's a reconciliation bill. But then, John, you're right. Like, do we concede infrastructure to the left? Like, it's frustrating here because it's a game of just really terrible political moves. Um, and that's just so disappointing is I feel like we are really kind of being forced to take a partisan stance on infrastructure, mainly because they're saying that infrastructure is everything but the kitchen sink. Um, and that is just, I, I don't know, I think it's, it's just incredibly frustrating. It's alarming. Um, and I don't really know where to go from there. Yeah, actually, going off of that, I want to read a quick quote from a political article I actually just read recently, and it goes this, quote, President Joe Biden says he views his $20 trillion plus infrastructure plan as simply a starting point for negotiations with Congress, a draft document of ideals where he, quote, says, compromise is inevitable. Now, that sounds comforting, but we have to look to precedent. What has the Biden administration done already? We heard very similar language around the American Rescue Plan. So my hopes aren't too high that he's actually serious about this, that he's not being genuine, because he invited several GOP senators to the White House to discuss the next coronavirus stimulus package. And what do you know, no GOP proposals made it into that bill. So I think what we're going to see again, we're going to see a repeat of the American Rescue Plan, where we hear these this is a bipartisan bill. This is we we are willing to compromise. And then sure enough, it passes through reconciliation without having any consent from the GOP. I agree. And I think President Biden is in a he's in a unique position where, um, you know, he does come from a, a, a very long legislative background. He has relationships with a lot of these senators in Congress. If he wants, he should be able to reach across the aisle and to broker a deal. And guess what? In the land of compromise, right? In, in this great republic of ours, that's going to mean that President Biden winds up with perhaps fewer things than he would like. Um, but that's the name of the game. And I think it would be helpful and healthy for our republic to have a, a big bipartisan win like this, right? Because like everyone here has mentioned, infrastructure is popular. It's something we can all agree on. This is not a polarizing issue. And I really think it'll be a big miss on President Biden's part to not engage in, in good faith with Republicans. And as Republicans, we should engage in good faith with him. I'm confident we can come to an agreement on a package that would satisfy everyone um, if only both parties are allowed a seat at the table. We've talked about the need for, for bipartisanship, and I, I couldn't agree more. But what do we think is driving the, the Democratic propensity to ignore Republicans uh, and their proposals? Do we think it's that they don't want to give Republicans a win? Do we think that there are progressives that genuinely disagree with GOP proposals? Do we think it's a media that's complicit in stifling any sort of serious legislation on the uh, coming from the Republican side? Do we think it's any of those things? Do we think it's something else? Because there's got to be stuff at play here because passing things through through reconciliation constantly, maybe I'm just ignorant, but I don't remember a time where reconciliation was used more than once in a year. I just feel like it's being used so frequently. That would be because it's never happened before. Uh, I mean, it's quite, it's quite literally a new parliamentarian uh, ruling that you can adjust it, you can reconcile more than once. Um, so when you say it's never happened before, it's because it quite literally hasn't. So you can't remember something that hasn't happened. Yeah. And i also, I wanted to address what John just said too. I think if you look at the language that a lot of the Democrats in Congress are using, they seem to think they have a mandate from the American people to go in and pass these massive spending bills that ultimately are just full of democratic priorities. I mean, you look at the language that they're using saying this is a mandate, this is what the American people want. And that's, I mean, if you look at how Congress is split, that's really not the reality. We have a 50-50 Senate and a very narrow margin in the House. I mean, there, this isn't a mandate. And to call it that, I think it's just dishonest. So, Ian, I think you bring up a really good point. 
that I would like to kind of go off of here and say that I think part of the reasoning for this um, is something that we talked about earlier. And so, okay, let's think about why they're doing it through reconciliation. Well, one, why are they calling it infrastructure? Because if they call it infrastructure and they say that we're doing an infrastructure bill, they can take that to the media and they can take that home to their constituents. And when they're doing their MSNBC or CNN hits and say, we're working on infrastructure. No one's brought you infrastructure reform in so long. Like that's what we're bringing it to you. Right. And so when you go and like, as an average voter that isn't necessarily super politically involved and not on Twitter and you're not looking into this, you're like, cool, well, they're doing infrastructure. Um, But there's a lot of stuff in this bill that we haven't even touched on because we were only touching on the stuff that really is infrastructure. Or if you like squint, you can kind of view it as infrastructure. Um, But there's some other things like the PRO Act, which I was talking about earlier today or earlier in this episode. The PRO Act, um, among other things, besides, you know, banning right to work laws across the country, um, which they're in over 30 states. So that is quite literally a huge violation of federalism um, and really annoying. Um, But another thing that it does is independent contractors. So this means that, you know, your gig workers, your freelance journalists, your Uber drivers, Uber Eats, like all these different things, they are paid as independent contractors. They're called 1099 workers for those of you that don't know. The PRO Act subsequently eliminates the 1099 status. Um, So in the United States, that is over 25 million people that will be losing their job because of the fact that the PRO Act is being considered in an infrastructure bill. So something that they're going to pass via reconciliation is going to eliminate 25 million jobs. Um, And look, there's a lot of, you know, back and forth here on whether or not this is a good thing in terms of Uber-specific employees. Um, But overall, that 25 million people is not just Uber drivers. That is college students. That is people that are doing freelance. Those are consultants that like to give out their contracts and able to make several different types of income and not to drive themselves to one client. This is a big deal. Um, And so when we talk about why they're doing it in legislation, in reconciliation, the answer is they're really kind of trying to hide all of the other stuff that they're doing in the name of infrastructure, because as we said before, infrastructure is popular. And yeah, oh, you did mention, so you mentioned that the PRO Act is an assault on federalism. And if we look at this bill in its entirety, the whole bill kind of seems to be an assault on federalism. And if we look, Biden has said that he wants to use federal funds to fix around 10,000 bridges within the United States. But a lot of these bridges in other pieces of infrastructure are typically pieces of infrastructure that are handled and repaired by local and state governments. And my question is, why can't local and state governments take care of their own infrastructure? I mean, this is a federal inclusion on something that's traditionally held and handled by local and state governments. So I kind of wanted to throw that into the mix too and see what your guys' thoughts are on that. Well, I think it goes to, we tend to, to have this sort of false frame of mind that, you know, in local governments, right, federal dollars are free dollars, right? That's just money that comes down from on high, right? Um, but we all know that's not true, right? There's uh, federal dollars just come from the American people. Um, and uh, and I, I agree. And I think it'd be great if, uh, if these uh, localities were able to handle those things on their own. Um, and I'd be interested to sort of dive in there and find out how much of it is a is a result of mismanagement and perhaps how much of it is a result of actual lack of funding. But personally, I would prefer if it is a result of a lack of funding, I would love if our federal taxes were lower and our state taxes were higher so that states could handle those at the ground level. Yeah, you know, and I will mention this too. Um, if we look at the American Rescue Plan, a lot of states received money from the federal government in to make up for budget deficits and budgetary issues. But if we look at a lot of these states that received a lot of this, these federal dollars, they weren't really experiencing budget problems because the money from Congress that was appropriated to deal with budget problems was appropriated to the states based on unemployment rates. And I mean, it wasn't appropriated based on any sort of budgetary measure. So I think when looking at this, this is a really a state and local issue. I mean, these bridges aren't the aren't the responsibility of the federal government that are the responsibility of states and localities. I have a very I have a view of federalism where the federal government really shouldn't be spending massive amounts of money on things that don't really benefit the populace as a whole. 
you know, the, the government's role, the federal government's role is to, you know, maintain defense and keep and keep and maintain programs that benefit the country as a whole and not just certain states and localities. No, Ian, thanks for all that. And I want to talk more about federalism and what uh, conservative solutions we can propose in the federal government that are more appropriate. Before moving on to that, I just want to uh, emphasize how absolutely nuts it is in an infrastructure law. We're talking about eliminating 1099 status and eliminating right to work status. Um, I I think, uh, I mean, right to work has been one of the greatest conservative victories um, of the past 30 years. And I know as I've entered a professional career, I have loved that I have not been compelled to join any union, which isn't to say that someone shouldn't be able to join a union if they, um, if that's not what they want. Um, but the idea that someone should be compelled to join a union to find work is, um, it, it's an affront to the principles of individual liberty. Um, and as someone who used to drive for Uber, the idea I mean, we saw in California, California tried to reclassify Uber drivers. And we all know how liberal California is. The decision was so unpopular in California that it was reversed by a ballot initiative. Um, and I, I think the, the this idea of eliminating 1099, eliminating right to work, it, it goes to sort of that um, kind of nanny state philosophy some people have that individuals don't know what's best for them. And I couldn't disagree with that more. I think the American people, by and large, are smart. They're intelligent. They know what they need, and we should trust them to make their own decisions. So sort of speaking about how the American people know know what's best for them, I do think there is a central theme that everybody would like to drive on a, a smoother road with fewer potholes. They'd like to have a better experience with trains and with you know taking a flight, making sure the airports are able to handle, you know, more flights, quicker, stuff like that. And there are a number of different proposals. And I think we we discussed that we wanted to really drill down on a couple of these things that in, in their infinite wisdom, Congress has decided to inc- uh, include in this infrastructure package, things like the gas tax or the mileage tax or uh, rural broadband or high-speed rail versus air travel and and the like. I just want to get you guys' thoughts on some of those different things because it does seem like they would be, in a way, standard fare for any sort of 21st century infrastructure program, but I know they're somewhat controversial. No, I agree, John. And I think um, some of these things we're about to talk about, right? I, I know it's popular in some conservative circles to believe that the federal government should just be, you know, malnourished and as impotent as possible. Um, newsflash, most Americans like a federal government that does something for them. And, and as conservatives, I think we need to live up to that reality. And so the question is, what are things that are appropriate for the federal government to do? This is what Ian was talking about, right? What are things that are appropriate for a federal government that represents all Americans to engage in? Yeah. Um, and so I think in the you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to steal this line from you guys to not be the devil's advocate here. Um, but let's kind of start talking about one of these things. I want to make it very clear that um, we all don't think the same. Um, and we definitely differ on some pretty interesting policies. Um, and so one that Carter and I like vehemently disagree with, granted, I don't know, I'm just saying that we haven't really gotten into it yet, um, is the idea of changing the gas tax to a mileage tax. Um, and so I'm going to give Carter the floor in hopes that he can maybe convince me before I give my two cents. Um, so with that, something like a gas tax to me, I'm very, very skeptical of. I'm from a very rural area. Um, but maybe Carter has something to say that will change my mind. So I would just like to point out that I am by no means a big fan of a, a sort of mileage tax, but it is a policy proposal I have been kicking around Um So basically, uh, as sort of a brief primer for any listeners out there, um, right now, how most of our infrastructure is funded in this country is through a gas tax. You probably don't realize that when you purchase gas, that a lot of what you're paying for is actually a tax on the gallon of gas. And that goes to fund our infrastructure, right? And so that's a principle that I like, that those who use the roads are those who pay for the roads, right? If you don't want to own a car and you don't want to drive on our roads, that's no problem. Guess what? You don't pay gas and, you know, you don't pay for the gas tax. Um, So I really like that. But as we 
uh, as the future has gone on, right? Um, we're starting to see new inventive technologies, right? I'm thinking in particular of electric cars that don't rely as much on gas. Yet, despite being electric, they use the same wear and tear on the road. So the question is, how do we get those people to pay for our roads? And this is a question that's only going to become more pertinent because as the time goes on, guess who's going to bear the responsibility of a gas tax more heavily? It's going to be poorer working class rural folks, right? City folks are going to be quicker to adopt electric cars, right? Um, but people who can't afford a new car or need a car with a little more horsepower, they're going to be, uh, they're going to continue using gas powered cars. So that's why I think the idea of a mileage tax is interesting. And I want it, I want it out here right now that I do not support a mileage tax in addition to a gas tax. I only support a mileage tax if we were to abolish the gas tax. Um, and, and basically the idea with a mileage tax is, right, that you pay by the mile. Um, for every mile you drive, you you know, you know pay a, a, a certain fee. Um, my, my biggest concerns with the mileage tax are the intricacies in collecting it. Right now, it's super easy to collect the gas tax. You just pay at the pump. A mileage tax, I'm not quite sure how that works. You take it in once a year and then they look at your odometer. Well, now you're paying big lump sums every year and that's not great for Americans' budgets. I wouldn't support anything that would serve as some sort of tracking device that then logs how many miles you're going or where you're going and then reports that data to the federal government. Um, so so I want, I, I'm not sure exactly how to work out a mileage tax, but again, I'm worried about a future where electric vehicle drivers get a free pass and where poorer working class folks are stuck with the responsibility of funding the roads entirely, despite everyone using that. Okay. So I do think you do bring up good points. Um, I think that I look at it just like a little bit differently. And I think that that is just mainly thinking about where I'm from and like how my life was um, in the sense of sometimes in order to go to like a very good grocery store that like had fresh vegetables that weren't something that were like being imported, you know, that is 40, 50 minutes away um, to go to the doctor, um, to go to a specialist doctor too that is 20, 30 miles away. Um, but that's because I live in a very rural area. We rely on our cars because that's the only way that we can get places. When your neighbors live far away, um, which I didn't grow up with and I live in a subdivision, but like in the terms of all of that stuff, like when things are spread out more, you're going to use your car more. So what I worry about with something like a mileage tax is that it automatically selects people in rural areas, which I think people also say happens with the gas tax, considering you'd be buying more gas. Um, but I do think that it is something that worries me a little bit is the fact that, you know, we're getting as, as we kind of modernize and as we, you know, move, we're seeing a lot of different things happen in the government where we're starting to subsidize rural living a little bit less, um, especially as our exports get a little bit bigger. Um, and so I worry that some of these subsidies for rural living that makes it possible, which kind of makes something like the gas tax not super burdensome, um, is then going to be revoked. And then it's going to be something like the mileage tax, which automatically targets people that live far away from things. Um, and I'm not even just talking like going to the, the doctor. I'm talking about going to school or like food deserts and the fact that grocery stores are far away in these areas. So I just, I worry here and I worry about a consumer tax in general, um, especially on something like this. I think that we have to find a more stable way to fund infrastructure that isn't based off of usage. Um, and I agree that if you use the road, you should be paying more. Um, I'm also not advocating for like toll roads everywhere. Um, but I feel like there has to be some sort of more consistent way to be able to fund infrastructure that then doesn't heavily rely on the government either subsidizing or unsubsidizing where you live so that you can bear the burden of that tax. Um, so that's mainly just my main concern with something like that is it's a very modern solution, um, but many areas in our country just aren't that modern yet. Um, and the Midwest and rural America being one of those, um, like those are not going to be the folks that get an electric car right away. Um, that's going to take a while. I um, mean, I've never heard of an electric tractor. So like, there's like a lot of different things here that play into this. I think that's no, um, one, I just like to point out, it's funny you bring up toll roads. Um, ever since I've moved to Florida, I've actually become a big convert in favor of toll roads. Um, for those who don't know, I, I live in Orlando. 
Um, I'm a big theme park buff, so it's a dream come true. Um, and and one thing I love about the toll roads is that, we, again, with that principle of those who use the roads pay for them, the tourists that come from out of town wind up funding a lot of our roads, which is great because otherwise all these tourists would be putting a bunch of wear and tear on our roads um, without contributing to it. And Elle, I think it's funny that the reasons that you oppose a mileage tax are the reasons I support it. Um, because again, I'm I'm worried about those rural folks, right? And I'd like to point out, you say there's no such thing as electric tractor. If we were to uh, get rid of the gas tax and institute a mileage tax instead, well, now your tax your tractor doesn't get taxed at all because it's not going to be traveling on the roads. Um, you bring up great points, Carter. Great okay. points. Well, I'd like to, as a co-host, I'd like to officially end the episode here. Thank you for watching, everyone. Um, <laughs> um, no, I think. Uh, and so that's, again, what, what sort of, what drives me to support or to, to be interested, and I should say, a mileage tax over a gas tax is, again, how do we expand the tax base so that all Americans who use our roads are contributing um, and, to, uh, and to not disproportionately, like you said, I'll uh, put the burden on more rural folks. And then my so opposition think- to gas taxes, again, is just how do we collect it? Um, right. Anyone who's listening... I'm on Twitter. Uh, hit me up if you know how to collect a gas ta- or a, a mileage tax. So I think that Ian has a few feelings on this as well. And so I kind of want to get Ian's take on this. As I said, that Ian is from an area that is similar to mine um, and different things like that. And, and Carter, you said something that I think just kind of sparked this thought for me. Um, but I think a big a big aspect of it too, though, is that you know when you look at the Midwest and you look at Middle America, especially our big agricultural hubs, that food gets to you somehow, um, and that's typically big trailers that you know that comes down to cattle, that comes down to you know even just moving grains. All of that stuff is done using our major highway highways. Which when we talk about infrastructure, I'm not even going to go on the tangent about how most major highways in America can't support enough weight to be able to transport cattle or really anything in the agricultural industry. So we're shooting ourselves in the foot there. Um, But I do worry about something like a mileage tax too. It's not only do people in rural areas have to travel long distances to be able to get to things, um, but also the food that feeds America has to get to you somehow. Um, So then does that mean that we're going to be double charging on on those things? Are we going to be sliding the people that are delivering your food? I don't know. So Ian, what's your take on this? Maybe you can take us a little bit further. Yeah, no, I can definitely sympathize with what Elle is saying. I am a, I probably have a different, little bit of a different living situation. I live in a small city in the Midwest, but I'm only about a 20-minute drive from like an extremely rural cornfield area. So I can definitely sympathize with that. And But I can also sympathize with what Carter's saying with the rise of electric vehicles and EVs in general. You know, a gas tax isn't going to work for much longer when do- when the dominant uh, vehicle becomes electric. So really, I'm undecided on this issue, and I can really see where both L and Carter are coming from. But it's really interesting to hear that the reasons that Carter supports a mileage tax are the reason is the reason L opposes them. I think it really says a lot about how different people um, form their b- opinions based on just where they come from. L, a very rural area. Carter, I'm not exactly sure where you come from, but I'm sure you don't come from an extremely rural area like L. So I think that's just a really interesting dynamic. No, I, I agree. I'm a, I, I hail from a Washington State, a city called Vancouver. Great part of the country, by the way. Everyone go visit it. Um, but I, I, uh, I think one of the concerns we see in the Republican Party, and one thing that we need to address as, a, as the un coming generation is um, we are entering an age or or perhaps we already live in an age where those who have the means to get ahead do incredibly well for themselves. And those on the, um, and those who are poorer or struggling to get by don't do nearly as well for themselves. We see this sort of in regulation, right? Amazon loves the idea of raising the corporate tax. Amazon loves the idea of raising the minimum wage. Um, and I'm not digging on Amazon because I use them a lot, but I'm just using them as an example. Um, but they love the idea of raising the minimum wage because they can afford it. Um, the uh, uh, but but small mom and pop businesses they can't, and that's sort of what leads me to be interested in a mileage tax, right? Because okay, let's say new big infrastructure bill, right? How are we going to fund it? Well, we'll fund it the same way we always have. Let's you know in- increase the gas tax, right? 
what does that incentivize, right? That incentivizes the purchasing of electric vehicles. And I'm not knocking on electric vehicles. My buddy took me for a ride in his Tesla the other day. It was awesome. Um, but but that, that buddy of mine is fortunate to have the money to afford a Tesla. And people, especially rural folks, they don't have the money to upgrade, uh, you know, necessarily to an electric vehicle. Um, and, and like Hell said, I don't, I've never heard of an electric tractor, right? And we're just barely beginning to have electric pickup trucks. Um, and so I, I think we need to be cognizant of not leaving those people behind. Um, and, and I think that's where the Republican Party goes wrong sometimes, is we don't want to leave those people behind. And so we become the party of no. We stand as thwart and say, no, don't go any further. But that's not enough. The, you know, the country's going to progress with or without us, right? And if we don't formulate solutions, these people are going to be left behind. Um, and so we need to come up with solutions that adapt to the changing nature of our country, not just wish that our country wasn't changing. And I think the mileage tax might be one of those solutions. Carter, you can't see me right now, but I'm like shaking my head um, in, the, in a positive way, like agreeing with you um, vehemently. And so I kind of want to take what you said and reduce it down to like a way even more basic level um, in the sense of you were just talking about how those who have means do really well and those who don't struggle to do really well. I'm not saying you can't do really well. I'm a success story. I come from one of those. Um, but there are very basic things that act as giant barriers. Um, and one of those things, which is included in the infrastructure package, um, which I also think is really important, it's also been a big Republican talking point lately, and I'm really glad that it is. Um, and I think part of this is due to the pandemic, and I'll explain why, uh, but it's rural brand broadband access um, and broadband access in general, because it's not even just in rural areas. There is still, um, sometimes it can be very difficult to afford internet. And so you can kind of see the inequalities when it comes to living in urban areas uh, to those who can afford internet and those who can't. Um, and then there's also other things in the sense of living in an area that just does not support broadband yet, does not have those capabilities. Um, and so this is becoming a big issue now, or at least becoming a big talking point now. It's been an issue for a while. We should have, you know, modernized a long time to be able to do this. But it's in the sense of in the pandemic, we saw a huge shift from traditional care uh, with the, within doctors and all these different things to telemedicine, right? And we were like, wow, telemedicine is awesome. It's going to reduce the gaps we have between access to care, all of these different things. Um, and we were really, really excited for the impact that that was going to have in rural communities, especially when it came down to being able to see specialists. Um, but then we didn't necessarily see that materialize. It definitely happens. I'm, I'm not saying it didn't. Um, but we didn't necessarily see that materialize to the level that we could because of rural broadband access um, and the need to have access to things. And so I think the best way to explain this right now, and it, maybe it explains why we don't have this and why it is a talking point. I live right on the border. I mean, like literally smack dab on the border of Illinois and Wisconsin. Um, and so when it comes to our internet access, we get access to the edge of Wisconsin coverage and the edge of Illinois coverage. So the fact that I'm right in the middle there, um, it's understanding that I'm not getting good internet access because it's not extending there because it's not profitable to be able to have you know, the internet access kind of kind of uh, come over each other. So between Illinois and Wisconsin. Um, and that happens in a lot of different areas. But broadband access is not just, oh, being able to surf the internet and being able to go on Twitter. It, it means that that is education. That means when we went virtually in the, in the pandemic, that there were people in the country that didn't have access to their education simply because of where they lived. Um, and so that's all of these things. And so I think if there's one thing in the infrastructure package that Republicans hold on to and really do champion if we're going to be the party of the little guy that ends up reaching success, the party of working Americans, the party of middle America is rural broadband access because it's one of those things that is a fundamental barrier to success and people don't even realize it because how many people do you know nowadays that don't have access to internet? Um, and my answer is I know a lot of people, um, but where I go to school and all these different things, they don't. Um, and so this is something I, I just think that we really, really do need to champion because it is fundamentally preventing us from having success. No, I think that's a great point. Um, and, and one thing uh, that I think rural broadband could really help with, um, for those of you who don't know, I'm a software engineer by trade. 
Um, and as the pan, it's been interesting as the pandemic happened. Um, I I live in Orlando. I work for one of the the major entertainment companies, um, and obviously we were hit really really hard by the pandemic. Um, and we were nervous about layoffs. Um, we actually, we were fortunate we didn't have to lay anyone off in my division. And we actually discovered that when we switched entirely to work from home, that our division became more productive rather than less productive, right? Um, me personally, I'm kind of an office guy. I do miss going into the office. My office was in a theme park. So, I mean, I miss hearing uh, the screams and going on rides at lunch. Um, but I, uh, but it's been interesting. So many people have had to relocate to the to cities or to the suburbs to work and and do these jobs that we're now discovering can be done completely from home without any decrease in productivity, right? And so, if we can increase rural broadband, you know, um, and, and bring uh, bring uh, high speed internet to these communities, this could be a, a real great way to revitalize these communities. There's lots of good real estate out there cheap real estate, it's expensive to live in these cities, right? But if you could have um, maybe a white collar professional job, um, if you're the type of person who's wanted a job like that, but you could still live in a community, a more rural community, and let's say you grew up in a rural community, but you don't want to, to do a blue collar job, and instead you want a white collar job, it's sad that you have to leave that community one day. What if instead you could have and do that kind of work that you wanted to do, but you could stay close to your friends and family and help grow your community? Um, all of that can't happen without rural broadband. And I think this goes back to what Ian was talking about um, with federalism, that um, we need to have a federal government that has targeted bold approaches rather than throw everything against the wall that, that sticks. And I think Rural broadband, like Alice talked about, could be one of those targeted approaches that could really revitalize some of our communities that are struggling. I make this argument all the time, um, but rural broadband access, like quite literally, is the American dream. Who doesn't want to be working um, and being able to be working from an at-home office, staring at the mountains or staring at the lake in some remote area where no one is bothering you? Like to me, that is just the absolute dream, and that could be the reality for so many Americans. And it just doesn't happen, and it's so sad and just so heartbreaking. I I definitely second that working and looking at a mountain sounds like the American dream. So we've discussed a lot today, and I think it's sort of reflective of the nature of the topic of infrastructure. There's a lot that can and can't be considered infrastructure, and we're grappling right uh, with that right now. And I think tonight was a really, really good example for how Republicans can engage in good faith on the issue and not just be the party of no. And we'll, we'll see where this whole infrastructure bill shakes out. But I think we all as Americans hope that whatever the, the final product is, whatever the final vote is, that we end up getting infrastructure, no matter how big or small, that is better for our country, that spurs economic growth and encourages innovation. And most importantly, recognizes that budding nonprofit organizations and their podcasts are indeed infrastructure. And I just want to know what Joe Biden's plan for our organization's infrastructure is. Anyway. What is Joe Biden's plan to get us more money? <laughs> well, you see, we can't take Bill Crystal's money and Joe Biden's money. Anyway. Darn it. Uh, that's a wrap for episode five of season two. We hope you enjoyed our discussion and we'll be back next week. Oh,